Welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. I'm Caleb Meyer. And I'm Ben Clemmer. We're having this conversation in mid-December, almost a year after one of the biggest cinematic triumphs featuring a Marvel superhero. That last part might not narrow it down too much, but maybe this will. With great power comes great responsibility. One thing to know for sure, don't do it like me. Do it like you. Do animals talk in this dimension? Because I don't want to freak anyone out. Let's do this one more time. Or not, because you know what this is. Into the Spider-Verse. And that introduces our guest, Autumn Schultz. Who we should reference is wearing a Spider-Gwen t-shirt today, so <laughs> representing very well one of my favorite characters in the movie. Autumn, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Caleb, you and Autumn go back to high school, and then all three of us met in college at the University of St. Francis, where Autumn studied animation. Autumn, you want to tell us a little bit more about that? So I studied character animation in college, and since then I've been a part of a number of animation projects. I mean, I think one of the main things that got me started, most of the Marvel movies came out like when we were in high school. After a lot of that came out, I mean, didn't Avengers come out in like 2012 or something? It like did. right before I graduated, at least. Mm -hmm. um, Marvel Phase 1 is basically our high school experience in terms of, yeah. in terms of dating all of us. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. so that was one of the things that got me really interested in animation, more of the live action things. And once getting in college, I fell in love with more of the stylized form of animation. We are so excited to have Autumn joining us here today to talk about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which we just finished watching and is quite a ride. For general audiences, this animated Spider-Man is probably not the first one you think of. I did not see Spider-Verse in theaters, and when I saw it later, the Batman fan in me wanted to compare it to Mask of the Phantasm. Phenomenal animated comic book superhero story on the silver screen that a lot of people missed. I'm a DC guy, not a Marvel guy. On top of that, I have a background in audio production, not in animation, so Spider-Verse was not on my radar. The same cannot be said for someone who saw the movie not once, not twice, not three times, but four times in theaters. What was it like seeing it for the first time? What were your first impressions of Spider-Verse? I think the best impression is just from the beginning of the film, that opening sequence. From that moment on, you're just like, this is going to be a good movie. This is going to be a good movie. And it keeps being a good movie all the way through the film, all the way to the ending, all the way to the ending scene. It, it just, it doesn't stop being a good movie. Or like that opening sequence with Peter Parker, like Chris Pine's Peter Parker. Mm-hmm the Columbia animation in the beginning and then moving to the Sony animation where you get to see all those little graphics and everything that make comic books unique right from the beginning and then moving into the Peter Parker, the Chris Pine Peter Parker. It just gives you that little refresher that we all know about Spider-Man 
I mean, gosh, there's been seven movies now? Yep. Seven live-action movies about Spider-Man. And how many hundreds of comics? But this is giving you just a little refresher for everyone and even some of the comedy that we're all familiar with about Spider-Man. And you have just incredible production work and incredible teams working on it, all of which we'll delve into. That creative team is a huge part of why the film resonated with audiences so much, because they all had pretty varied backgrounds, especially the directors. Spider-Verse was directed by Bob Perchetti, Peter Ramsey, and Rodney Rothman. Now, Perchetti was an animator with Disney through the late 90s, early 2000s, working on such films as Mulan, Emperor's New Groove, and Treasure Planet before switching to DreamWorks, and there he worked on Shrek 2, Monsters vs. Aliens, and The Little Prince. Now, Ramsey not only directed Rise of the Guardians, but has spent a career spanning the late 80s till now as a part of many Hollywood blockbuster art departments. Ramsey worked on Predator 2, Batman Forever, Men in Black, and Independence Day as a storyboard artist. Rothman, the final piece of the puzzle, spent years as a writer for The David Letterman Show. You get the experienced animator, you get someone who has been around Hollywood, but then in moving from being a storyboard artist in film to being one, or live action film, to working on animation, it's a much more direct translation of your work, and then a wonderful layer of late night comedy on top of the whole thing, which is part of why Spider-Verse is as funny as it is. Do I want kids? I mean, just so many of the wonderful little lines that we all reference. Exactly, and bringing those three things together is such a strong foundation, because you hit all the major beats that the film hits. So once you know that, you can see it portrayed in the movie itself. My favorite part is when they reference the Tobey Maguire dancing down the street scene. I died when I saw that. The intro is just a perfect encapsulation of what most audiences are going to be familiar with as Spider-Man to that point. You see a lot of, like whether it's trying to stop the train or different visuals that people might be familiar with from Spider-Man 2 or Spider-Man 3. I didn't realize how much I wished maybe one of those live-action movies had cast Chris Pine. He does just a wonderful job. And and also, speaking of someone who's usually pretty good at picking out actors and voice actors, the first time I saw Spider-Verse, I did not realize that was him until the first scene with the Collider. But you have, again, in Spider-Verse, you see a lot of familiar elements, even in the very beginning and when you get that origin story from Pine's Peter Parker. You have Aunt May, you have Mary Jane, you have the death of an uncle, all things that are very familiar to an audience that has seen Spider-Man before. And then we meet someone who audiences are seeing on the big screen for the first time. Yeah, Miles Morales, who is hot take the best character in the film. Can we all agree on that? I don't think it's a hot take at all. (laughs) He's the main character. He's the central figure. He is the heart of the film. He is the star around which everything else revolves in the film. And written so well. Like, he's written exactly like a teenager at his age would be. It's perfect. Well, I know in our most recent viewing, we were enjoying not just getting to see, I mean, forget transferring schools. If you've just graduated from one level to another, the kid on first day of a new school experience is something most everybody can relate to. Mm -hmm. And getting to know his mom and dad in just a really quick sequence, rapid fire, getting ready for the first day. Plus, you have little touches like stumbling into the street and unleashing a swear word in Spanish. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That hidden little Spanish swear word I thought was such a nice touch. That's such a unique thing too for the writing is because Miles is half black and Latina that they put that Spanish in there. That was something that people really liked about that character to begin with, that he was a minority, that we don't have very many minority superheroes. And I think that representation is such a key aspect of the film because of, you know, Stan Lee's vision and... Anyone who's touched 
the Spider-Man universe in a creative way, a main theme is that anyone can be Spider-Man. And that's a main thing in the film, which Miles definitely plays into. But then as we introduce all the other versions of Spider-Man or Spider-Woman, they all represent that same thing, that anyone can put the mask on and be a superhero. Miles, I think, is just a lot... He's cool. Like, just straight up. I mean, he's a lot cooler than I was as a teenager. Uh, And I think, especially, like, later in the movie when his dad's like, you know, you have this spark. Like, you can see that from the very beginning, from his introduction, when he's doing his art and, like, sitting alone a sunflower. You're like, okay, I'm on board with this character. Like, I'm on board with this kid. So that scene where Miles' dad is talking to him through the door. Um, I actually had watched that probably like my fifth or sixth time watching it, had seen it with my uncle and his son. And when we were watching it, um, I was trying to pay attention to the movie, of course, but then I got distracted because my uncle started crying and he leans over to his son and he's like, I love you. And he, and of course, my cousin, he's just like, shut up, dad. <laughs> <laughs> It, it was so interesting how many aspects of this film relate to so many different people because it's made for literally all audiences. When I was in theater, I saw little, little kids in there, and then I saw parents, and then I saw people my age, and I saw even an older crowd in there, and everybody was watching and enjoying it. There's someone for everyone to relate to in this film. Whether you're like Miles, you're a teenager trying to find your way, or you're the parents or the uncle as a guiding figure for younger people, especially Uncle Aaron. I mean, he says in the film that he wants to be a role model to Miles. And Maharsha Ali does an amazing job with that character. I mean, his performance is so wonderful. He's not, he's only in the movie for maybe a couple minutes total screen time, but I feel like he steals every scene he's in. That emotion you can feel between the two characters of Miles and Aaron is really influential because especially that scene where uh, they're both on the rooftop and the Prowler has Miles in his grasp. Um, It's such a small little animation detail, but you can even see the tears in Miles' eyes because he's like, "I, I can't hurt you and I don't want you to hurt me. The emotion and the expressions that go on uh, between Miles and Uncle Aaron, it, it wasn't the scene on the rooftop, but I think it was actually, I think it was Uncle Aaron's first scene when we were watching. Mm-hmm. You referenced that in terms of the expressions, there's a technology there that Sony actually patented. The characters throughout the film are just so incredibly expressive. What Sony did, which was really amazing, was they added so many 2D sort of effects to the animation and one of those is with the facial expressions so they basically made it so they have all these lines on their faces that they can maneuver with the facial expressions and then they can even take their stylus and add lines in so even like some of those expressions like when they make a sound like when they knock on a door or when they say something that's very expressive you have like those little lines that that show up, and that happens a lot in comic books, too. So that was something that was really unique to the style of Spider-Verse. Well, yeah, I mean, the comic book references are off the wall. Every hit, there's a pow, a klabooey, a whatever sound effect. 
a thwip. Thwip. <laughs> they literally reference thwip. I mean, when P.D.B. Parker is teaching Miles how to swing, it's thwip and release. Thwip and release. I really like those freeze frames that they have during a lot of like the swinging scenes. So when they're swinging through, it'll like freeze on a scene and it'll be like a comic book cover where just for an extra second, you get to see this. It's something that keeps happening throughout the film. It doesn't just happen in one spot. And it's something that just adds to the entire look of the. Mm -hmm. And each one is color coded to the specific characters. I love that Mm -hmm. because they do one for each time that the characters leave back to their own dimension. Like once they hit, there's that their color scheme comes out again. After Spider-Verse had premiered back in December, all of January was filled with every major artist on Twitter promoting their Spider-Sona, where it was drawing themselves as a version of Spider-Man. And I think you can probably still look up majority of them online, hashtag Spider-Sona, but they are glorious and they are beautiful. And everyone designs them so well, putting their own crazy spin on the Spider-Man persona. And that's so inspiring that people can look at that and be like, I can do something. I could be Spider-Man. I could change the world. All the animators were talking about it, all the artists, because this was like a movie made for artists. You can tell because of all the artist jokes, the computer jokes, the little inside thing, especially with like the the Banksy pun and everything. We watched the alternate version while we watched a little bit of it. And it begins with a Peter Porker mini cartoon, but they like bring in animated jokes. I mean, it was just a direct call to like Looney Tunes and the Scooby-Doo kind of, that slapstick kind of humor. I don't think any of us realized how much we needed a Looney Tune style Spider-Ham cartoon with the voice of John Mulaney in it. I mean, it's just a wonderful way to start out. The amount of humor and callback to Looney Tunes are amazing on their own. And then there is a hard fourth wall break and they are referencing a lot of different aspects in animation humor that I know, Autumn, you can speak to better than I can. So what what all were we seeing there? Like as like his outline is coming off, and then we see that it's clearly on a computer screen, and there's a... Like, the little mouse cruiser is coming in and dragging him all over, taking off his one of his layers. So layers are like layers of skin for a character. So the animators will draw an outline for the character, and then they will apply the color for it, especially with 2D characters, which is how this specific short was animated so when it goes through and it's kind of dragging him around with the stylus and everything and his layer falls off you then see the layer screen that turns off layers and (laughs) mixes them around and everything so he's getting all jumbled it's a direct call to animators so for me especially i was dying when we watched spider-verse together earlier today one of the scenes that we all kind of realized we had a deep appreciation for uh, continuing again the interactions between Miles and his uncle Aaron is the montage where they are spray painting in the tunnels. So there's so many just wonderful little details that uh, you get another great music cue and the fact that they're spray painting and everything that's going on is synced up to the music behind it. You get little details like paint splattered on cameras. It's so much more than just a montage. Not only is it just exciting visually to watch, but It's the first time we see the spider, which anyone who knows anything about Spider-Man knows, oh, this is the moment. So you're very engaged on the edge of your seat, like, oh, what's going to happen now? And all the visuals lend specifically to that. 
Well, in pausing on some of those shots within the Uncle Aaron montage of the spray paint, uh, we did point out that it looks very much like a 3D movie, but it's not. And one of the things they did that make it kind of look like that was they added a blur sort of in the background. So you know always what you're supposed to be looking at because what they do is they draw your attention towards the person or the subject and everything in the background is kind of blurred. So I think it was the third time I saw it in theaters. One of the managers of the theater we were talking to and he said a lot of people had come out of that movie and were asking for their 3D glasses because they didn't realize that that's just the style of the of the movie. And he's had to tell like multiple people like, no, that's just the style of the movie. That's just how it looks. So one of the things that makes Spider-Verse interesting is that the creative team wanted the movie to look visually appealing in practically every scene. So you could take a screenshot of almost any moment in the movie and it looks like a picture. And we did that multiple times while watching it and everyone, we were just like, it's beautiful. There's nothing wrong with it. Even some of the action scenes, they're still... Doc Ock is about to get hit by a bus and it looks glorious. <laughs> yeah. Or, yes. I mean, Scorpion just got hit with an anvil on the head and that looks beautiful too. Mm -hmm. Part of that that helps is that the creative team chose not to use any motion blur for this movie, which if you've seen more of the recent animated movies, then you know that motion blur animators kind of rely on that for some things. And taking that out of the creative process, a lot of the animators were like, what, what are you doing? This is going to ruin the movie. And they were like, no, this is how we want it to look. So that absolutely adds to the fact that you can pause the movie at any moment and it looks not only like a picture but like a comic book and also that they had to rely more on 2D methods to create this movie which is where that new technology that they made came in and also using techniques from very old animation to make it work. So one thing that they did was when you see like Miles running you see his hands moving a lot, and if you would pause it there, you would see multiple hands. That's called smearing, and when you smear, it's where you have multiple things going on at once to create more of the illusion of animation. And it's kind of the same thing in Gwen's montage where you can see her playing the drums. There's multiple hands going on, doing all of that stuff, and that's the technique that they decided to use to create the sort of illusion of a motion blur, but not really. And that's something that I think makes Spider-Verse so unique and influential in the animation field. Taking those old ideas and implying it to new 3D technology. So after the wonderful montage sequence, Miles is bitten by the spider. He starts going through the whole transformative process that goes along with that, but that was also right around when we made a decision while watching it because we initially were watching the movie in alternate universe mode which which was cool and it was the reason we got the whole extra spider ham cartoon introduction but it also had lengthy unfinished sections that involved a subplot with the roommates and other things where it's like okay this is maybe taking away from the film more than we thought it was adding to it so we jump back to the regular version and at that point we're with miles 
as his world is changing at that point, there's key differences. Now that he's been bitten by a spider, his experience of the world and the audience's experience of the movie along with that changes dramatically. Yeah, I think one of the big shifts that it makes is it always feels like a comic book movie from the very beginning, but they bring in the speech bubbles, the thought bubbles in the comic book kind of boxy style with Kirby Crackle, the little dotting technique that's iconic for any kind of comic book look. Yeah, so after Miles gets his powers and he's walking down the hallway, we do get this kind of vertigo feel where we actually get to experience the spider sense We've never really had like a good idea of what that's like. Actors have portrayed it on screen, but it's never been done quite this way. And I love the text in the background that just says, look out. And then the big crash that comes through and we get to see Spider-Man again. Because for a while, the movie's been about Miles. And then we get to the scene and it's back to Spider-Man. And we're like, oh yeah, this is a Spider-Man movie. I was so caught up. And this kid's life, I almost forgot. And it's great that they bring Spider-Man back because we've become so invested in this young kid's story. Now they have that Spider-Man connection. But immediately right off the bat, once Spider-Man meets Miles, he's like, I'm going to show you the ropes. I'll take you under my wing. Like, the two stories become one. And that's also where we get to meet a lot of our main villains, such as Kingpin and Green Goblin. And we even get to hear a little Olivia in the background where we then meet her later. And for people who haven't read the comics, it would be easy to maybe think Kingpin is a daredevil villain, but he's a major Spider-Man villain. He, his first appearance was in The Amazing Spider-Man number 50, and so right out of the gate, we see Kingpin, and Lee Schreiber's portrayal is right up there with Vincent D'Onofrio's. It's so good. You have, of course, Chris Pine's Peter Parker, and other than the fact that Green Goblin is the size of a 747, this feels like a normal Spider-Man story for the most part until... The portal's open. So I have to ask because this is where we start to get characters from other universes and start to see how this world is about to change. Who are some of your favorite versions of Spider-Man? Oh, Andrew Garfield. No doubt. But that's just because he's so handsome. I I meant in Spider-Verse, <laughs> but I can appreciate where you're coming from. Oh, well, okay. If you have to make me not pick Andrew Garfield, Miles, like 100% Miles is my favorite. He's so likable. He's got such a big heart. He just wants to do the right thing. And watching his growth from being unsure of himself to figuring out who he is and who he can be is just an absolute joy to watch. What about you, Autumn? Well, it's actually really hard for me to pick because they were all so funny and brilliantly cast i mean nick cage as spider noir that was pretty spot on (laughs) all of his lines were beautiful but for me i connect a lot with spider gwen i read many of her comics and i love all of them so i would have to say she's my favorite for me it's a tie between spider gwen and spider ham though that is entirely because of the voice actors involved i love Haley steinfeld and John Mulaney as Spider-Ham, again, is not something I realized the world needed, but I'm so happy with the re-ed results. A little interesting tidbit, just because pop culture and all the connections in it are cool. Penny Parker was actually created by Gerard Way, who is the lead singer of My Chemical Romance. Just funny how things like that work. Something I thought was cool was they were never afraid to play with size, such as the giant Green Goblin, and also Kingpin as he fills the entire screen of the film when he walks in 
that was such an interesting design choice, but I wouldn't change anything about it. Yeah, and Kingpin is 100% like art design choice, but at least the more monstrous version of Green Goblin and a female Doc Ock both have like real comic book references. Those have been in comics before. And that's one thing I love about this movie. It knows how to pay homage to the source material that it came from. And that was something you brought up during the film was they wanted these characters to be intimidating and they definitely were. Well, really in this scene is where we get to see a lot of those animation elements in full force because we've never had like a huge combat scene before this one. Seeing that and like all the little explosions, the action, even the freeze frames in that moment, they're great. And it raises the stakes. I mean, the scene ends with, spoiler alert, the death of Peter Parker, which is a bold move for a PG movie. I mean, they kill off two main characters in the film. There's hidden swear words. There's a lot of violence, yet the film is still appropriate for children. Like, any audience of any age, I think, can appreciate this film, and there's something in it for anyone. I think that's something we lose in a lot of today's media, because... I feel like people are afraid to kill characters off, especially in animation, because they're afraid of the backlash or upsetting people because you kill off one of their favorite characters. Spider-Verse, I didn't feel like was afraid of anything with this movie. They were like, oh, this technology doesn't exist. We're going to make it. Oh, this story is going to have several characters from several universes. Let's do it. It juggles an entire multiverse and does so making it look effortless. And does so while tackling like real life issues of, you know, a kid growing up and figuring out who he is and divorce and character death, which ironically mimicked real life when the movie was released. Stan Lee unfortunately passed just a few weeks before the movie was released. And this was the first movie I saw with a, another cameo of him in it after his death. And that struck me when he showed up on screen, especially because it happens right after Spider-Man dies in the film. Like, the real-life parallel with the movie made it so much more impactful and so much more powerful. Can we talk about the animation sequence when Peter Parker dies? Because, first of all, you had brought up the sound for that moment and how impactful it was, but also... Everybody in this moment is just learning who Peter Parker was, that he was just some 26-year-old grad student who was doing his best out there. And there were, I mean, even Miles' dad, he compliments, like, oh, he's like some guy who just gets in the way all the time. But even when he dies and you see it on screen, his dad feels emotion in that moment, too. One other detail I want to throw in there, again, just being the audio guy, once we first see and i'm trying to think of when we first hear it but prowler has and it is just like one note or one chord but he has just a little light motif every time he's on screen and it is intimidating i mean it is justifiably terrifying to an audience and just works so unbelievably well i mean the movie itself has a fantastic soundtrack and there's little elements here or there where it's like a blend of drum machine beats and superhero symphonic scores all just blended together wonderfully but you do get that one little leitmotif in there for prowler whose story is ultimately by the end of act two the central conceit that leads to miles becoming spider-man i know we've talked a lot about how much we love chris pine's peter parker huge chris pine fan so i completely understand it but jake johnson did a fantastic job as peter b parker 
And, I mean, the internet just absolutely adored that character and adopted him into their meme culture within days after the film's release. I mean, you have... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this will be my contribution, then I'll kick it over to you, Autumn, because I know it's your favorite character. I mean, the world at large was as big of a fan of Thick Spider-Man as they were of Thick Thor. Hashtag Daddy Long Legs. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then... I think part of why people love him so much is he's... Yeah, he's a hero, but he also is, like, down on his luck. I mean, he's divorced, he is out of shape, he's depressed, which is something a lot of people can relate to. Like, everyone's been in a slump at some point in their life, but he still can be a hero, which, again, ties into that whole thing that anybody can wear the mask. Even if you've been wearing the mask for 20 years and you're a little tired of it, like, it still fits. When we were watching the movie, I know one thought I had with him was just the fact that he doesn't seem to express thoughts internally. The best way to learn a process under potentially life-threatening circumstances. Yeah. Or, I love you, I'm so proud of you, do I want kids? <laughs> There's so many just wonderful little moments with him. Well, like I said earlier, almost any scene from that movie could be taken as a picture, right? Well, the internet certainly did its job, and they took multiple screenshots of that movie and created different memes from them. I think the most iconic one, though, is probably the thinking one behind the stone before they crash into the Alchemax building. Once they do break into the lab and it becomes fairly apparent that he's going to wind up talking to Doc Ock before she brings the arms out, you have this moment where it's like, okay, we're going to wind up talking. I'm going to turn the charm on. Whoever animated that had a ton of fun. Oh, yeah. Funny lines like that are always fun to animate. When I was in school and whenever I'm doing animation, the best part is always the funny lines. I don't want to say we we fight over those scenes especially, but we definitely push for those scenes. And you can definitely tell that animators had so much fun with this movie. They're such good character moments because it gives you like a little bit of flair personality of each character. It makes me think back to when Adam Green visited St. Francis and talked about working on Moana and saying, I want the pig and the chicken. (laughs) The fun ones to animate. That makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. But like what's really cool is all of them are animated different too in their own kind of style. Like uh, Spider-Noir, he's always like standing up straight and he's very postured and everything because he's a very serious character. And then you got Peter Porker, the little one who's like always kind of like in a ridiculous pose. So gifts a hammer that will fit in your pocket (laughs) and then you have penny parker who i think we again in watching the movie discussed might be your spirit animal yeah absolutely she always has food with her and she's wearing heelys so that's the real goal Uh, i mean and a robot who will follow you around that's that's pretty pretty cool too (laughs) i know one thing i've appreciated in us talking today is i know there are things from the audio perspective that i'll hear that other people might miss and then whether it is like noticing that a character is wearing heelys or the multiple hands aspect. Like there's so many different facets to animations and visuals that you have referenced here today that I didn't even process. It's amazing. And you mentioned earlier, you talked about how this is a movie made for animators because it's made by animators and they're the real heroes of it. I mean, they, you can tell they had so much fun making this. So one of the main things that I thought was really unique about this film was there was over 170 animators on this film alone. And working over four years, you're like, oh, that's, that doesn't seem like a big number because a lot of us are used to 
TV casts and everything where there's like hundreds and hundreds of people working on them. But over 170 animators is absolutely insane. Because when you think about it, a lot of Disney films, they have like 50 or less. And that's trading a lot of the jobs over from the modelers, the people who create the scene, over to the people who animate it, and then over to the people who render it. But having that many people work on this film really shows all the detail that they put into it because you have scenes with multiple people and multiple animators animating those multiple people at the same time and making cohesive scenes. There was a couple of scenes where they were like, it has to be perfect, so they would work on it for literally months and weeks and just to get it to the right feel that they wanted. It's also why, and I, I'm pulling from the film's trivia here, but why throughout the film there's obviously the Stanley cameo, but there's also just little frames and little moments and different areas where you can see Stan Lee throughout the entire movie. Because if you're an animator on Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, you want to animate Stan Lee and have him in there somewhere. Yes, absolutely. What a lot of the animators did was, and this is a technique that a lot of animators use, is they film themselves saying the thing, doing the motions, and then they'll go and they'll animate it. So you can look, and a lot of these expressions that people are doing, that is pure animator. They're saying it how they would say it, to the tempo that they think is right, and then applying that to the animation. Yeah, and I think that really shows in sort of what I think is the culmination of the film, which, you know, you can see the heart that all the animators put into it alongside with the heart of the main character of the film coming into his own, which is the whole sequence when Miles puts on his own super suit and becomes Spider-Man, beautifully tracked to What's Up Danger. But you can see the influences that he has. Like, he moves the same way that Spider-Man from the beginning of the film moves. In the climactic final fight at the end, he literally does a reference-for-reference swing around on the collider that Spider-Man does in the beginning. And the characters call it out. Peter B. Parker's like, did you teach him that? Gwen's like, I didn't teach him that. That's because he learned it from his first mentor. And you also get the audio from everyone who's inspired him as well. I, I geeked out a little bit as you're getting voiceover from different characters and just all the little bits and pieces of things that have inspired him that have stuck with him. On top of as you just said, What's Up Danger, just such a wonderful music cue. Spliced a little bit. I mean, you listen to it on the soundtrack, it's going to sound different than what it does in the movie, but it's just so perfectly laid out. You get four kind of buildups instead of two right before the, can't stop me now, and then you're off to the races, and it is just Miles coming into his own. And the technical visual aspect of that, Autumn, when we were watching it, was something you mentioned. You kind of blew Kayla's mind and mine, as, as you mentioned how... It shows Miles truly becoming a superhero just with one technical change. Yeah, so for most of the movie, it's really interesting because Miles is animated on twos. And what that means is that you're pretty much animating every other frame of that character. While every other character in the movie, especially the Spider-Man and the Spider-Woman, they're all animated on ones, which show their experience in their profession. So that's something that's really influential, especially in the scenes where they're swinging in the woods where Miles is running and he's very choppy, he's very jumpy, and Peter B. Parker is is animated on ones, which means he's animated every frame 
while Miles is animated on twos. So especially in the what's up danger scene, that's something that changes almost immediately as soon as he jumps off the roof. You have that influential buildup of the music and all those great character moments that people say, but this is where the animators really change their tune and they start to animate him on ones. And you get to see that fluid movement as he he falls off and he swings perfectly for the first time. And as he's running through the streets, uh, you kind of get his particular style of being Spider-Man along with his line, I run better than I swing. It's something that was really thought out and you can tell a lot of people had a lot of influence on this one scene. One of our teachers that we all had in college has a famous quote that we all use, which is, what something is about tells you how to make it. And this is a story about anyone can be a superhero and anyone can be a superhero in their own way, which Miles exemplifies in that scene. I think my favorite thing about that scene is the way it ends, because you have that great song, that great soundtrack building everything up throughout, and then it ends on that one hit right as the comic book is thrown down on top of the pile. So you have this new superhero added to this bunch that you've seen all these experienced people before him, but now he's joining the top of the stack. So I believe one of the first teasers released was the scene from What's Up Danger where he jumps off the roof for the first time and you see him falling. And that was such an influential shot that they used it for all of the posters as well. And as soon as I had come out of the theater, my first time watching it, I had texted my uncle who was friends with so many people in theaters and comic book shops and everything. And I was like, can you please find me this poster somewhere? And like six months later, he comes to me and he says, okay, so I got you a poster. It's a little different than what you asked for, but I think you'll be happy with it. And he pulls out like a giant 40 by 60 movie theater picture that covers an entire wall. And I was like, oh, I am happy. It will be going in my house someday. You'll be able to see that from the road. Oh, my word. (laughs) While there's a whole final fight that follows it that has so many great character moments and, again, just breathtaking visuals that make Spider-Verse so special, the story is, again, one that shows anybody can be a hero and balances a multiverse story arc so well. I mean, for those of us that are comic book fans, the fact that it handles that with such ease and gives you those wonderful little moments where you have a divorced Spider-Man in one universe talking to the widowed Mary Jane in another, and you just get those little character details from the first act all the way through to the third. It is a masterpiece from start to finish, and one that I am happy we were able to talk about with an experienced animator. Yeah, I think it was one of the best films of 2018. I think everybody should see it. If you haven't, go watch it. Because it is. It's for everybody and anybody. Because, like the movie says, anyone can be a hero. So, for anybody who's ever talked to me, I have talked up this movie since it came out. And I don't believe it's just one of the best Spider-Man films. I believe it's probably one of the best comic book films ever made. Autumn Schultz, thank you so much for joining us for the first season of Storytelling Breakdown. We loved having you here. Thank you.
We are recording this in our hometown, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm thrilled that we live in what it's fair to say is an arts hub. There's music, theater, film, and so many amazing visual artists. Joining us via Skype is Melissa Thomas, an artist from South Bend, one of the biggest Star Wars fans I know. Welcome to the spotlight portion of Storytelling Breakdown. Hey, thanks so much, Ben. I'm super excited to be talking to you guys. So from the visual arts side, I am always just blown away by what I see get posted on social media. That's kind of been my window into kind of in, into watching your artist style develop over these last six or seven years. Where did you start? Tell us a little bit about your uh, development as an artist from I am interested in drawing and doodling these characters to just the amazing output you have today. Like a lot of people, I just kind of started when I was a kid. My parents would always play like the Disney movies all the time. And a lot of that was just like the Lion King and Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and all of like those golden age of Disney movies. And so I had like this infatuation with looking at particular scenes and trying to copy them as best I could. Uh, so I kind of had an obsession starting there. And I, it just kind of continued with me all throughout my childhood. But in 2004, when The Incredibles came out, that was when like the interest for me exploded because it was like, I don't know. I, I would kind of say that's like an older kid animated movie it's in tone because there's like a lot of action. So my mom took me and four of my older siblings to go see it and it blew my mind. So by the time I got out of the theater, I was like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. Like I was just completely convinced of it. And then like ever since then, I just haven't stopped. And the inspiration that you take from obviously Pixar and Disney and Disney is a good segue as our conversation today is very Star Wars centric, uh, but also very Star Trek centric simultaneously. What were your first exposures to those universes as well as some of your favorite ones to just go back to and it's just like, yes, this, this feels like coming home because there's so much of it that does. Yeah, definitely. For sure. Um, my dad is a huge Star Wars and Star Trek geek, even though he won't admit it. So I completely blame him for it. But those were always on when we were kids. So he would always be playing, you know, the original Star Wars, and then he would always be playing the original Star Trek. So it, there kind of wasn't a point where it wasn't in my life. Like it just, just was always there in the background. But I remember as a kid, my favorite adult movie, if you will, was The Phantom Menace. Like, I was just obsessed with everything about it. I loved the feel of it. I loved the concept of, like, the Jedi versus the Sith and the darkness of it. And it, it was just always, like, in the background. So I kind of blame my dad for planting those seeds. And then as I got older, it just kind of never left. I felt like I needed to get my expression and love of these characters out somehow. So that's where it kind of just started segmenting, like, onto the page. But to get to a point where it's, like... You know, you could go to my Instagram right now and there's like all of this art of them. That was really difficult because I was a really shy kid growing up. So it'd be like, I draw these and then shove them away. So to make that leap to Instagram, I think has only been recent within like the last four to five years, which I think is saying a lot more about me now because I've just been able to tap into that side of myself where I'm like, I don't care. People need to know I love these characters and how great they are. So it's just kind of like putting them out online and then just seeing the kind of response I get. You also mentioned uh, before we turned on the mics uh, that you have experienced uh, something that I think is actually probably fair to say is on uh, Caleb's bucket list and mine, which is experiencing Star Wars Celebration. There will be listeners to this who will go, who, who have probably been there and will go, yep, know what she's talking about. This is amazing. This is what it is. But then there are going to be others in our audience who, like us, uh, have not gotten to experience it in person. So 
what has your experience been of Star Wars Celebration? Six years ago, I know that you guys mentioned before we got on the mics that you guys have seen Clone Wars. That's mm-hmm. correct. Okay. So when the Clone Wars got canceled back in 2013, like I was just crushed. Like I was just absolutely crushed because it was my favorite show. And then when they announced Rebels, I kind of started looking more into going to Star Wars Celebration and kind of seeing what that was about because I had heard of it, but I had never really considered going before. So in 2017, um, you know, I was talking to my parents and I was like, I'd really like to make this trip out to Florida to be a part of this convention. Like, I want to go with my sister, Carolyn. Is that something that we could make happen? And so my parents sent me and my sister to Florida, um, put us up in this hotel right attached to the convention center. And we got to spend five days of pure Star Wars. And it was absolutely surreal. Um, I don't even know how you sum up the convention in one go. There's just so much going on. You know, they bring in all the voice actors and actresses from the animated series. They bring in all the actors from the movies. They bring in the producers. They bring in the writers. Every single person you can imagine is there. So it's just kind of like you get into this room and you're so overwhelmed. I got to talk to artists who work on the TV series. I got to meet up with friends that I had talked to online about Star Wars Rebels. There was a a giant group of people that got to meet up and talk about fandom. And it was like a a huge surreal moment for me. I got to attend the season three Star Wars Rebels panel and sit in the audience. I waited in line for 10 hours. Uh, (laughs) You look you look so shocked, Ben. No, no, no. I am recalling what I've experienced of cons. And that is around the average once you're at a big one. And Star Wars Celebration is just that. Right, right. But they I got up at, uh, oh, God, one thirty in the morning and I got in line at two and the panel wasn't until like uh, 1030 or 11. <laughs> so I was just waiting in line with all of these people. But it was so much fun because you're going off of pure adrenaline like in that moment. I waited in line for 10 hours. I got to the front of the line with my friends, which was totally worth it. We get into this panel and you're like super close to these actors and actresses. And I was just an emotional mess. I was crying. I was like, these are my heroes on this stage. Like it was completely worth it. But yeah. Oh God. Star Wars celebration is an absolute must for any fan. And I have made so many great connections because of that singular convention. So I'm like highly recommend it needs to be at the top of your bucket list for sure. And I've been lucky to attend too so far. Now, I reached out to you about joining us for the spotlight when your art was starting to pop up in a certain way, and we'll get to more on that in a little bit. But you do an amazing job of bringing characters from, of course, Star Wars as well as Star Trek to life and just getting all the little details right that you look at the picture and you go, yep, I see it, and I know immediately that's Darth Vader, that's Spock, that's Obi-Wan, that's Ahsoka. You see him and you know him. And as I was planning to talk to you today I was thinking about just some drawing I've tried to do for characters for some of the RPGs that we've been playing and realizing okay I've gotten past the acceptance portion of I'm going to suck at this for a while and that is okay but then also realizing what a luxury it is that I am drawing characters who have no strings attached to them in terms of preconceived notions from other people who may see them it is my own creation all of the named characters I just mentioned are known by millions of people. And 
is that a hump you have to get over? I mean, is, there's just so many details that you want to make sure as an artist you are getting right when you bring a character to life on the page who is so well-known and loved by so many people. So I think for me personally, because I think it's different for every artist, but I'm a perfectionist. So when I approach drawing these characters, in my mind, it's like I want to do them justice so bad. Not so much for, you know, like, oh, I'm posting this on Instagram and like God knows how many people are going to see this, but more in the sense of like, I want to get it right. So it's important for me to get it right. Otherwise, I'm going to be frustrated because I really want to do these characters justice. I never really started thinking about other people's interpretations. I don't know, maybe up as recently as like two years ago. Because then my art started really hitting traction, like up until about two years ago, it's like I had like what, 100 or less followers on Instagram. And then it's like you go on Instagram now and it's like 29.5k followers are following you and you're like, oh, so I think I think there was definitely a switch in how I was viewing how people perceived my artwork of them. And this might sound a little bit weird, but I try really hard to get into the character's head. So if I'm drawing a scene and it's like Ahsoka Tano and Anakin Skywalker are fighting side by side and there's like an emotional facial expression because something dramatic is happening. I really try to put myself like in that situation almost to the point where it's kind of like I act it out <laughs> to kind of like get into their heads a little bit because I realize if I can act it out and make the audience feel what I'm feeling in that moment, I know it'll come across to them. I know it'll hit somebody emotionally. So it's just kind of like putting myself into the heads of these characters to kind of get people to feel or see what I'm seeing. That's kind of how I approach it now. Or as opposed to when I was doing it before, it was just kind of like, here's my impression versus here's how I want people to feel when they look at this. Like, oh, this is um, Spock and Bones and Kirk. How do I want people to feel when they look at this? It's more about like getting a reaction out of somebody now as opposed to, I love them and they're just here. I think that's the big difference in how my artwork has transformed in drawing these characters. I also had that very specific Tony Stark obsession phase. Like, whoa, well, God, when was it? Uh, last year? I think we all have that 3,000. <laughs> oh, we all have it, 3,000? Oh my gosh. So I'm having a lot more fun kind of like pulling on the heartstrings, so to speak. <laughs> I'm going to chime in with a couple of things going off of my questions a little bit, because when we talked about when we talked with Autumn about Spider-Verse, we talked about the relationship to Miles and his uncle Aaron and just some of the heartstrings that get pulled for those who, who see that movie. Though everything you just described on the acting front, uh, my background is audio. Caleb's is theater. You were nodding throughout basically Melissa's entire response. That's exactly, I think the point is an emotional response from any character, so... Like, I loved it when you said you acted out. That's, like, exactly what people should do, because if you're going to be representing someone, whether that's acting them out on a stage or drawing them, if it's a character that you didn't create that's not you, then, like, you have to get in that headspace. So, I love that. You put yourself in the head of what that character is experiencing, like, what they're going through in that moment. And emotionally, if you pour yourself into it, somebody will relate to that they will and I find that so cool that we have that power to make people react in that kind of way it's always been so fascinating to me and it's like to quote Spock it's fascinating to get that kind of a reaction out of somebody is really cool and unique to us as creative so it's something I've been trying to tap into a little bit more and you got some reactions from the right people because your artwork has found its way onto official Star Wars and Star Trek merch t-shirts mm -hmm. 
the designs on them were just the the whole piece together when that when the first time one of them popped up in my feed. I think it was the Star Trek one first. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. Like it, it blew my mind. So we will include links in our web copy to all the stuff that you have worked on that, that you've created that is available for people uh, to purchase. But how did that opportunity come about? What led you to having your artwork on official Star Trek and Star Wars merch? Two things. The The first thing is, is the, the Star Wars one is for my friend, and I'll explain that one in a bit. But I'll start talking about the Star Trek one first, because like I told you earlier, at Star Wars Celebration, you do get a lot of connections like it's a really good place to kind of meet up with people and make those connections for opportunities to rise and one of the girls that I met at Star Wars Celebration her name is Savannah Kiefer it's now Savannah Audit she and I had been talking online back in 2015 about Star Wars Rebels and we kind of cultivated a friendship online and I finally got to meet her in 2017 and after that she and I just never stopped talking like we, we just kind of like our friendship kind of evolved over time with that. And um, I've been on her podcast and I've done a lot of artwork for her promoting her podcast when she goes to celebrations. So she and I are like constantly talking about ways to do that. She runs a creative solutions agency. She has a lot of clients. And one of her clients is this company called FanRaps that does official Star Trek and Star Wars merch. Apparently like back in late July, early August last year, this guy from that company tried to reach out to me about doing licensed artwork, but through my Instagram, and you know how Instagram like won't show you messages unless they're from people that you follow. You know, they do that where it's just kind of like they filter them out. Oh, shoot. Right. So (laughs) they filter them out and I didn't see the message. And I got a text from Savannah and she's like, hey, there's this guy named Nick at Fan Raps. He's really interested in getting you to do some Star Trek artwork for him. Here's his information. And then Nick sent me an email and he was like, hey, I really love your work. I've seen your Star Trek stuff. It's a lot of fun. I'd be really interested in getting you to do licensed Star Trek art. And I was like, oh, you know, like this is a really cool opportunity. Absolutely. I'd love to go for it. So I emailed him back and I was like, I'm definitely interested. How can we get this set up? And he emails me back and he goes, this is awesome. Everything's looking great. I'm really excited to get you started. Uh, I'm just letting you know when we do this, we're going to have to send it to CBS. But then uh, the family of Leonard Nimoy is going to have to approve it along with William Shatner. And I freaked out. (laughs) Let me tell you, I like my heart stopped and I slammed down the cover of my laptop and I just went, oh, no. Like it was panic because initially when you think when somebody tells you that your first reaction is like, oh, my God, absolutely. I'm going to do this. It's going to be great. But I just panicked. I didn't know what to do. And I called my brother and I was like, I'm panicking. Help me. And he goes, what's wrong with you? (laughs) He got him. He's like, what's the worst that could happen? Why would you not give this a shot? And I guess something clicked in my mind, because when you do work like this, when you do fan art, when you do art of your favorite characters, you're in a safe zone, so to speak. It's like you're putting it online, but you don't really expect that anything's going to come of it, right? You don't think that anybody's going to look at it and go, oh, I want that. And so I felt like I was breaking a safe zone. I was like, I don't want William Shatner to see my work. <laughs> like it was, it was terrifying. So it took me like, a day and a half to respond to the email, but eventually I respond. I was like, yep, let's go for it. I did five or six mock-ups. I sent them to Nick. Nick picked his favorite. I went through, I rendered the entire thing. And then he's like, Hey, we're going to send it. And I was like, Oh my God, 
So they send it and, you know, Nick didn't think it was going to go through because I have a very specific style and a very specific look and companies tend to be very, very picky with what they want to go with. It's like they'd rather go with the what people know as opposed to something new. And mine is very, very different. It's not standard. And I'm driving in the car and I just get this text from my friend Savannah in all caps. Your shirt went through. (laughs) All caps. I freaked out. I was screaming in the car. I was driving. I was so excited. But that's essentially the Spark Notes version of what happened with Star Trek. But thanks to my friend Savannah, she orchestrated that whole conversation with me and uh, Nick at FanRaps. So if it wasn't for her, I really wouldn't have gotten this opportunity. But it, it just kind of fell into place. I'm shocked that the T-shirt even got sent through. Like, I didn't even think that that was going to happen just because, like I said, I have a very specific look. And typically they don't go for that kind of stuff. But it's on a T-shirt now, so I proved myself wrong. <laughs> Recalling our experience in college, and if I have the timing right, was right around when we were starting to get teasers and information starting to drop, or in visuals from The Force Awakens, and just how excited we all were. You having your own little slice of Star Wars and Star Trek fandom is is right and just in so many ways. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's kind of funny how all that works out, you know. You you spend so much time investing in fandom, right? Like, you get involved in these characters. You really care about their stories. You care what happens to them. You you don't want anything bad. You just want them to have, like, their, their good and safe little zone. And, and then you get to the point where it's like you tr- you become an adult, you know, and your, your passion gets put out there. And all of a sudden, people are contacting you about your passion. They're like, hey, do you want to do this? And it's just, it's surreal. I just, I can't describe it. I feel very fortunate to have the opportunities that I've had. So I can kind of spread the passion for it that I feel for it so deeply. Melissa Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on Storytelling Breakdown. It's been wonderful to hear from you. Yep, thank you. And keep up the wonderful work. Thank you so much. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. Steven Stahovsky joins us as a writer and producer. Our podcast is hosted by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Thank you for having us. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been Storytelling Breakdown. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout.